0: Acts chapter 20. After a six-week break, we resume our study in the book of Acts, which is a historical account of the spread of Christianity in the first century world. And this is the final stretch in Acts. All right, Sovereign Grace Church, the final stretch. We will finish Acts, Lord willing, before the end of the year. And here's a flyby. Here's a flyby of, of this whole book. After Jesus Christ died outside of Jerusalem then rose from the dead bodily outside of Jerusalem and appeared to hundreds of people inside of Jerusalem. He ascended to heaven in plain view of his disciples right outside of Jerusalem again, promising them that he would send his Spirit. And he instructed them at that moment to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit came to them. That's Acts chapter 1. And back in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit did come. He came, he filled the followers of Jesus, and they began to take the gospel, this message, of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with god through the death and resurrection of jesus they took this message out from jerusalem and went to northern africa asia minor greece starting to move around the known world and and we've seen this in these last 19 chapters people dramatically converted miracles occurring churches planted pastors appointed all as a result of the gospel spreading out from Jerusalem. But now, this final stretch of Acts, the gospel begins to make its way back to Jerusalem. Back to Jerusalem. The apostle Paul, once a persecutor of the church, but now a leader of the church, has heard from the Lord. And the Lord has instructed him to take the gospel back to the place it all began. The passage in front of us this morning represents a journey. A journey both both for Paul and for those traveling with him. For for Paul, this is a journey of obeying God's will. A journey of obeying God's will, but for the rest of those with him, Paul's friends and co-laborers, it is a journey of learning to accept God's will for their friend. So, let's read... Our passage is Acts chapter 20 through the first half of chapter 21, a chapter and a half due to its length. I'm just going to read a section that we will focus our attention on. So look with me in Acts chapter 20 beginning in verse 17. I'm going to read through verse 38 and then I will pray. Acts 20 verse 17, the translator heading, Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders. Here we go. and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25. And give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. They accompanied him to the ship. Very words of God addressed to us this morning. Let me pray for the Lord's help that we would understand. Lord, thank you for both the example and the words of the Apostle Paul, which you have recorded for us. Thank you for handing these words down to us. Thank you that this morning, today, by a number of circumstances, we are studying this passage. This is no mistake. The people gathered here together, they are all here by your appointment to hear the these words taught and proclaimed and believed and acted upon. And so, Lord, we just simply ask that you would make the words on this page come alive in our hearts, that our faith might be nurtured, that we might see Jesus, that we might trust him and follow him and resign our wills to his will. Help us, Lord, to submit ourselves to you as we study this passage. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. What is it that makes Christians different from everybody else on the planet? What is it that makes Christians different from everybody else on the planet? Everybody, anybody could answer that question, but here's here if you dig down, here's what's really different about a Christian versus a non Christian. A Christian aims to know and do the will of God. And I said aim on purpose. A Christian doesn't always know and do the will of God, but that's what they aim to do. And that's what's different than them, than a non-Christian. Christians aren't more moral than anyone else or better than anyone else, certainly not smarter than everyone else. I'm proof of that. Not smarter than non-Christians, not cleverer, or wiser than non-Christians. Nope. A fundamental change has happened in a Christian versus a non-Christian where a Christian now listens to God and is interested in living for God, whereas a non-Christian is not interested in that. A Christian wants to do the will of God. And this is very important, crucially important. The stakes on this couldn't be higher. And listen to Jesus himself. These are his own words, Matthew 7. Not everyone, he said, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Your eternal destiny rests on whether or not you do the will of God. So, here's your one thing from this passage. Do the will of God. Do it. Okay? Just do it. Nike, just go do it. Go do the will of God. That, that's, that's the point here, okay? Give your life to this. Throw everything you've got at this, all right? At doing what God wants you to do. Paul does the will of God. He pushes on toward Jerusalem, even though he's promised suffering and hardship and imprisonment when he gets there, and the friends around him are all warning him and trying to persuade him not to do it. I mean, look, look down, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 21, verse 4, verse 4, chapter 21, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem, and then skip down there to verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, (laughs) Paul is determined to do the will of God and we should follow his example. No matter the cost, no matter the heartache, no matter the difficulty, no matter the sacrifice required, do what God has directed you to do. But that's just easier said than done, isn't it? That's just easier said than done, not only because God calls us to do things that are very hard and unnatural for us, but because we often don't know what he wants us to do, right? I mean, great for Paul. He gets a revelation from the Holy Spirit about where he's supposed to go, but but I don't know about you. That hasn't happened for me. We often don't know what to do in, in, uh, in, in a book called Just Do Something, a, a liberating approach to Finding God's Will for Your Life, author Kevin DeYoung asked this question, if God has a wonderful plan for my life, I'm not sure Paul would describe God's plan for him that way, but if God has a wonderful plan for my life, like like many people have said, then why doesn't he tell me what it is? You you ever ask that question? If God has such a great plan for my life, then why doesn't he just tell me what it is? Kevin DeYoung continues, our lives down here are a confusing mess of fits and starts dead ends and open doors, possibilities and competing ideals. There are so many decisions to make, and none of the answers seem clear. Does that, do you resonate with that? So many decisions, none of the answers seem clear. It's no surprise, he writes, that so many of us are desperate to know the will of God for our lives. Are you desperate to know the will of God? God's will for your life? Are you desperate to do His will? If so, then how? How do you and I do God's will? We're supposed to. Got it, right? But how? I'll give you three ways from our passage. Three ways we can do God's will. Three points that will serve as our outline. I'll give them to you as we go. Point number one. How do you do God's will? Go where God calls you to go. That's point number one. Go where God calls you to go. At the the beginning of Acts chapter 20, Paul had just left Ephesus after a major riot broke out. Now you've got to think back seven weeks, those of you that have have been here at the church. Paul left the city of Ephesus after a major riot broke out in the city. As the gospel was being preached there and Christian converts were being made there, the pagan religious leaders and the artisans that made idols in the city saw them as a threat to their livelihood, so they incited a mob. But the mob was disbanded largely without incident still. Paul took that as his cue to leave. And at the beginning of our passage in Acts chapter 20, he calls for the Ephesian disciples, encourages them, and then heads out. And over the next few months, he visits a number of the cities where he had planted, uh, uh, planted churches. But if you were to look at a map, you would see that beginning in chapter 19 and now in chapter 20, you would see that Paul is making his way back towards Jerusalem. He, and he was set on that path Back in chapter 19, verse 21. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you real quick. Here's where this is in chapter 19. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit, which means through the Holy Spirit, in the Spirit, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After a few years in Ephesus, that's what he's doing. He's going to Jerusalem. But why? Why Jerusalem? Paul is focused on taking the gospel to the Gentiles, and Jerusalem is the center of the Jewish world. But Paul hasn't lost that focus, don't worry. He still plans to go on through to to Rome after Jerusalem. But but he explains his reason for going to Jerusalem once he gathers the uh, the pastors of the Ephesian church, which is the section that we read, uh, his farewell address to the pastors in Ephesus. Here's why he's going to Jerusalem, verse 22 of chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 22, look there. He says, and now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, and here's his reason constrained by the Spirit. Constrained by the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit himself who's pressing Paul to go to Jerusalem. He is, he's going where the Spirit has called him to go, and that word constrained is a very vivid word. It's to be compelled or, or forced to act in a particular manner. Paul is being compelled by the spirit to go to Jerusalem. He can't imagine going anywhere else. To go to another place in his mind would be disobedience. He knows that God wants him to go to that city. Now, this raises some questions, doesn't it? At the top of the list is how does he know that? How did the spirit communicate that to him? And Luke's narrative, the author of Acts, is frustratingly scant in detail. We don't know if Paul heard an audible voice or a voice in his head, or just had a sense in his mind. We don't know if uh, we're seeing here Christians that are discouraging him from doing it, but perhaps there were other Christians that told him that they sensed that the Spirit was leading him there. We don't know if he had a dream about it, or maybe if Paul and other leaders had some kind of mission strategy session and decided that Jerusalem was advantageous for various reasons. It may have been some combination of all those different things that led him to conclude that the Spirit was calling him to go to Jerusalem. But what we do know, what we do know is this. The Spirit made it clear to him. The Spirit was unambiguous about it. And since the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is God, third person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Spirit is God. He is perfectly capable of making his instructions known to us. However he does it. (laughs) However he does it. Paul had a conviction from the Spirit, a Spirit-born conviction about where a specific geographical location he should go. And while I don't know how exactly the Spirit is going to communicate it uh, to individuals, we should seek the same kind of clarity and conviction. We should seek the same kind of clarity and conviction. Lord, I want to go where you want me to go. I want to be where you want me to be. Reveal that to me. And this is a very important thing to seek as a person for one very simple, obvious reason. We can only be in one place at one time, right? You can't divide into parts and go be in multiple places. We can only be in one place at a time. So where we end up is very important to us. Personally, and it's very important to God. He puts us in certain places for certain purposes. So we want to be where God wants us to be. Now, you you are where you are. I don't know how many different versions of a be verb, the to be verb I can use here. You you are where you are for various reasons, right? Some of you are here wherever you live, but you're here for work. Some of you are here because you grew up here. I I grew up in Orange County. Some of you are here for school. Some of you are here because you don't know where else to go. Some of you are here because you're stuck here. The reason underneath all those reasons, though, is that you're here because for some period of time, God, God himself, has called you to be here. That's true whether we sense it or not. So let me ask, do, do you carry a conviction? You carry a conviction that you are where God has called you to be. And, and the signs that you don't carry that conviction typically are things like restlessness, lack of focus, lack of contentment. The antidote to those feelings is a conviction that you are where God has called you to be. Listen, you're not here by mistake. You're not here in this room by mistake. You don't live where you live by mistake. God has called you to be here. And you you may not be here your whole life. He may call you somewhere else. And and today, right now, you can trust that He will make that clear when the time is right. It's your job now, right now, in this moment, to seek the Spirit for conviction. I hope that we all pray things like this. Lord, give me a deep sense of of calling that I'm where you want me to be. Convince me. Settle my heart. Give me clarity and focus. We we should pray more often like that than we should pray things like, Lord, tell me if I should take this job or not. He's often not going to answer that prayer. But this prayer, give me a conviction that I'm where I should be. That prayer, oh, he's ready to answer that prayer. Look, he's not hiding anything from you, okay? He's not hiding anything from you that you need to know. He's not trying to trick you or confuse you. But he is inviting you to come to him with a humble heart ready to be led by him in the way that he chooses to lead you. So that you can go where you're called to go. Stay where you're called to stay. Be where you're called to be. Oh, that is one very important way you can do his will. Bloom where you're planted, right? That's what we're talking about. Go where God has called you to go. Do His will that way. Point number two. How else can we do the will of God? Point number two. Say what God calls you to say. Say what God calls you to say. Chapter 20, verse 24, contains a sentence that could change your life for the better, okay? A sentence that could change your life. This is a big sell on my part. This is Dustin, the salesman. I got a sentence for you that could change your life, okay? Famous sentence. You probably noticed this sentence when we were reading through this passage. Chapter 20, verse 24. Paul speaking, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, Gosh, with negative self talk. Come on, man. If only, he says. So here's the value if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What Paul says in that sentence scratches a very modern itch, okay? Scratches a very modern itch. I mean, how often do we struggle to believe that our lives have value? Or that we're useful? Or that we're serving a good and noble purpose? Or that, that we matter to other people? Or that someone would notice if we were gone? So many of us struggle to believe that our lives have value. But Paul, he understands the value of his life. He understands the value of his life and it's it's not so he can accumulate good things for himself and you know uh, Have a vacation home and and you know get to go on nice vacations and That has nothing to do with how he judges the value of his life His life on earth is valuable for this reason and this reason alone Because he can use his life to speak the truth of the gospel That's why his life is valuable Uh, as a vessel through which God can declare his message of hope and freedom and forgiveness. That's the value of Paul's life. If he couldn't speak the gospel, I don't think he would want to be on earth anymore. I don't consider my life valuable at all, except that I can do what Christ calls me to do. And what is that? To testify to the gospel of the grace, the unmerited favor, kindness of God. The value of his life is to preach and persuade others of the truth that God, in almost unbelievable grace, sent his son to die in the place of sinners to bring them back to God. And every Christian who treasures that message personally I could tell by how you sang the songs we sang earlier that you treasure this message personally. Every Christian who treasures that message personally is called by God to share it regularly. (laughs) Treasure it personally, share it regularly. There isn't a Christian on the planet to whom God would say, don't worry about sharing the gospel, okay? Don't, I've got other people doing that. I've got other things I'm going to put you on instead. Did you, God would not say that to any Christian. God has called all of us to say something, something very important. Paul lines it out in verses 20 and 21. Look back just a couple verses. Here's what he says. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, verse 21 testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of, here it is, repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins, which are mastering you. Paul's constrained by the Spirit. You're constrained by sin and sinful desires. Turn from those and turn towards the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to say... God has called each of us to say this, that we are sinners in violation of the standards of a holy and sinless God. But this holy and sinless God sent Jesus to die for sinners on the cross. Can you believe that? He was raised from the dead three days later, defeating death and sin. And you, it doesn't stop there with just talking about Jesus. You, each of you, must turn from your sins and trust in Jesus to be forgiven and gain eternal life. We must call for a response. Every Christian is called to deliver that message and call others to respond to it. And we know that. Ah, we know that, church. But we need the reminder, don't we? We get off task. We get distracted. I certainly do. We carry a conviction that every Christian, though not equally gifted, not with equal opportunities, but every Christian is called to be a messenger of the gospel. An ambassador of reconciliation i i I just heard this week i was with uh we we had a we have a group of uh a group of men in our region here in sovereign grace that are are working on evangelism regional evangelists in fact uh, eric fang is the representative from our church helping us grow as evangelists but we were talking this week at this retreat and and one of the guys pointed out that there are according to polls a rising number of christians who, when asked, would say that they don't think Christians should be proselytizing. I read this, oh my gosh, this hilarious thread online where a non Christian was complaining about a Christian who proselytized him. And he was like, Why is this guy doing this? And then at the bottom of his message, he edits it and he writes an edit. Apparently, proselytizing is in the Bible. Now I see where this comes from. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Christians are proselytizing because it's in the Bible, not just because we want to grow our cult. (laughs) Thanks. Sympathy (laughs) laugh. Not just because we want to grow our cult, but because this is the hope of the world. The thing is, Christians understand that, that apart from forgiveness and the grace of God, we're all heading on our way to hell. Again, we sang it earlier as I ran my hell-bound race. That's why. It's not just because we want to grow the cult. It's because we want to save you from, from death and punishment and the wrath of God. And this is the way. You hear the message. You believe the message. You're saved. We want that for you if you're not a Christian. That's why we can't give up on proselytizing. The message of the cross has the power to change the eternal fortune of sinners. It has for us, it, has, it will for anyone who believes. And so we can know that we're doing the will of God as Christians by speaking the message, saying what God has called us to say. That you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's what we've believed, that's what we want you to believe. So, say what God has called you to say. Point number three, the final point. Face what God calls you to face. Face what God calls you to face. One of the most interesting tensions in this whole passage is the disagreement that arises between Paul and his traveling companions about what God is calling him to do. Look at chapter 20, verses uh, 22 and 23. Back in chapter 20, verse 22. Here's what Paul says again. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. The Spirit has been telling him over and over and over again, hey Paul, go here, go here, go to Jerusalem, here's what you're gonna, you're not going on vacation, you're you're gonna go behind bars. That's what I'm, that's what I'm sending you to go do there. Paul understands that he's running straight into danger, and that doesn't deter him at all. However, at the same time, in fact, the people that are sharing these things, the, the people through whom Paul is hearing the Spirit speak to him about what's to come, they think that the Spirit's warnings about his suffering are the Spirit saying, Paul, don't go. So they interpret what the Spirit is saying completely different. We'll look down at uh, chapter 21, so we're down, chapter 21, verse 10. Thanks think you skipping around with me here. Chapter 21, verse 10 and following. Here's what, here's what happens. They show up in another town. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from uh, Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. In verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to jerusalem (laughs) paul sees suffering on the horizon and he goes that must be god's will for me they see suffering on paul's horizon and they go that must not be god's will for you (laughs) They interpret these promises of suffering as warnings from the Spirit not to go, we can sympathize. I mean, look, who, who would want their friend and ministry partner and arguably one of the most effective leaders in the early church to head straight into danger? Of course they didn't want that, but they fell prey to something that we're all susceptible to, especially when we're trying to discern what is God's will for us. The idea that God's will for us is like the path of least resistance. It must be the easiest thing. It must be the thing that feels most natural. It must be the thing that involves the least amount of suffering and pain. That's usually what we're looking for when we're asking things like, well, what is God's will for you? We're looking for the best. They must be the best thing. <laughs> must feel good. No, that's not how you discern God's will for you. Spirit was calling Paul right into the belly of the beast. Paul knew that, but his friends struggled with it. One of the ways that we do the will of God, that we give ourselves to the the will of God, is, is more passive. It's more passive. We accept the suffering and the difficulty that God has determined for us. We don't need to go make it up on our own you don't need to go out looking you don't need to go out looking for it but we accept the difficulties that god has determined we should go through we don't run from them we don't hide from them we don't despise them well we do but we shouldn't we trust that both the blessings god brings into our lives thankful for we we trust that those blessings and those burdens and difficulties are the right ones. There's a song, actually, that our, our denomination's music ministry, Sovereign Grace Music, wrote back in 2008, and I wouldn't play it because the music's, the music's a little dated now, 15 years, I mean, it's so old. But the opening verse has this series of questions, rhetorical questions that ask your soul when life is hard, and I, I, these questions come into my mind regularly. Here's how the opening verse goes. It's us speaking to God. Shall I take from your hand your blessings, yet not welcome any pain? Shall I thank you for days of sunshine, yet grumble in days of rain? Shall I love you in times of plenty, then leave you in days of drought? Shall I trust when I reap a harvest? But when winter winds blow, then doubt. There's a lot of wisdom in asking your soul those kinds of questions. The Christian committing to do God's will has committed to believe that God knows what's best, even when that involves difficulty, hardship, pain, Loss. There's no way to avoid difficulty in life, but there is, there are many different ways to respond to it. The book I referenced earlier, Just Do Something, by Kevin DeYoung. Here's another thing that he writes. It's very helpful. He says, if you think God has promised that this world will be a five-star hotel, you will be miserable as you live through the normal struggles of life. But, if you remember that God promised we would be pilgrims, and this world may feel more like a desert or even a prison, you might find your life surprisingly happy. That has been the story in the book of Acts, if you think about it. Think of Peter singing a hymn while he's in prison. Surprisingly happy, even though he's suffering. Stephen, seeing heaven open before him and calling down blessing upon the people that were stoning him to death. Suffering, but surprisingly happy. That's the offer for those who Commit to face whatever God calls you to face. The happiness. The happiness isn't in the pain, the happiness is in getting to do God's will. The happiness is in the joy that's promised and the life that's experienced through Jesus, even in the midst of pain. Look, we were made to do God's will that's what humans were made for we were made to do god's will and the story of humanity is that we failed to do god's will and brought pain and brokenness and death into this world but that wasn't the end then god used the pain and brokenness and death in the world to save us through the suffering of his son that we may now again be restored and do his will by believing in and following his son The Apostle Paul here, he provides a wonderful example of of this kind of faith and faithfulness. Somebody who's committed to doing the will of God no matter the cost. And just look, here at the end, how God uses Paul's example to affect the other disciples. Look, Look down, chapter 21, verse 14. And since he, Paul, would not be persuaded is the faith of the disciples coming alive we ceased ceased trying to persuade him <laughs> and said let the will of the lord be done could you say that to yourself today let the will of the lord be done may that be our posture Let the will of the Lord be done in my life, in your life. May we all go where he calls us to go. Say what he calls us to say. May we all face whatever he calls us to face. And listen, just like with Paul, just like with the early disciples, it will take the very Spirit of God working in us to accept God's will for us. So join me as I pray that we would. Lord, we confess that it is hard to face that we're just not in control of so much that affects our lives. But it is a surprisingly happy thing to remember that you are in control and that your will for us, though oftentimes confusing, mysterious, confounding, That your will for us is good. That your plans for us, though they may lead through difficult moments and seasons, they ultimately lead us to a wide open pasture where we will graze and rest with you. So, Lord, I ask now that you would give each of us the faith to trust that you will make your desires and intentions known to us. Help us, Lord, to be willing to wait. Help us, Lord, to be willing to seek and knock and ask. And Lord, help us to accept that what you have for us is best. We ask this in Jesus' name and that we may glorify him. We say amen.